Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. Welcome to Tent Talks. I am the Reverend Natasha Beckles. I am an Anglican priest within the Diocese of London. I am part of the Compassionate Communities team. And I'm passionate about children and young people, about the intergenerational gift that is the local church. And I'm particularly interested in helping schools and churches work well together to spiritually, pastorally and practically help children and young people. This podcast is looking at the issue of interrupting serious youth violence. This particular podcast series seeks to explore some of the systemic issues that lie beneath contextual risk within our communities. It brings a frontline professional lens, but also a Christian reflection and reasoning. The series is made up of five themes packed into four podcasts. The themes are the big picture, then we'll have birth and bereavement, followed by education and belonging, power and privilege, and finally church and community. The structure of each podcast will be two-part. The first half of each podcast will draw upon some interviews that I participated in as part of the London Diocese's Lent Appeal 2021, which focused on the issue of serious youth violence. At that time, I was interviewed by some dear colleagues who were at the time ordinands and are now ordained clergy. They are the Reverend Pete Hopkins and the Reverend Lara Edwards. And they were more or less seeking to pick my brains on the issue. The second half of the podcast will then pick up on a more recent conversation between myself and a professional expert or leader who will hopefully bring some more insight to the history or the contemporary issues that are at play. In this first episode of Interrupting Serious Youth Violence, we will be framing the big picture of the series and then drilling down into the challenges around birth and bereavement. Now you might be saying to yourself, this is all very interesting, Sasha, but what license do you have to be exploring this topic? What are you bringing to the table that explains why your perspective or insight is worth listening to? Well, prior to being ordained priest in the Church of England, I have been working in education for almost 25 years, working in various roles in the London boroughs, the London boroughs of Kensington and Chelsea, in Brent, and in Haringey. If you know London um, at all, those um, boroughs will be well known to you. My love for learning basically took me from an undergraduate in Caribbean studies and history, BA honours, into um, a PGC, which is in the UK, a kind of teacher qualification. It's one of the teacher qualifications you can have. So I moved from teaching in my career to school improvement consultancy and then back into senior leadership in a primary school that was serving the Broadwater Farm Estate in Tottenham, North London. So for those listeners who might not be up to date on modern British social history, Tottenham has been the site of two major incidents of social unrest. In 1985, Tottenham burned. Yes. And again in August 2011, which is now called the English riot. So you had in October 1985, the Tottenham riot. And then in August 2011, what is now described as the English riots, which somewhat obscures the fact that Tottenham was the epicentre. So two riots, 26 years apart, but the same issues of structural and socioeconomic inequality, poor education, employment opportunities, systemic racism, over-policing and institutionally discriminatory practices. I went there as a senior leader. I stayed in post for 10 years. I felt called to stay and I committed myself to completing what I'd begun. And I did finish. It was a covenant kind of perseverance thing, I think. I led as the inclusion manager and Stenko 
on behaviour and attendance, safeguarding, special educational needs, that's SEND here in the UK, well-being and personal development. I led through the impact and aftermath of those riots, the daily trauma that affected families within our midst, the aftermath of the 24-hour courts that we saw a 13-fold increase in safeguarding concerns. And then there were the austerity measures that came in from 2010 uh, under the new government that came in at that time. There was also the hostile environment. There was bedroom taxes. It just went on and went on. It was a journey of bearing witness to a vulnerable community being, to be honest, absolutely stripped of its mental health, of its dignity. And that seemed to be happening on purpose or at least as an outcome of kind of laissez-faire economics. There was not a lot that I could do. These are big structural things and I'm just one person. But it, I suppose it was my privilege to be present, to listen, to grieve, to pray. And I often felt powerless in those actions. But whilst I was feeling powerless and grieving and praying, I did learn how to write disarming and sometimes blistering letters to the local authority. I studied the code of practice for special educational needs for children, which came in in 2013. And I built really robust systems to match that code of practice to make sure that our children got the special educational needs support that they needed. I was privileged to be able to work with an amazing team of people um, from all walks of life and got to train them up to be the excellent staff that they were. And that ensured that the vulnerable children and families got the resources they needed. I learned to be persuasive using words well, so we got the money that we needed. I had the opportunity to run pioneering projects, which allowed us to really test out some of the ideas that we were developing in the community, whilst finding ways to unify a loving, disparate, traumatised and sometimes tricky team and wider community. It was hard. It was a hard 10 years. It was costly, but it was beautiful work. Over that 10-year period, you know, I I witnessed a lot about, I learned a lot about contextual safeguarding risk because our children were walking past these things. We had a children's centre. And so, you know, you were watching that journey of who and which children were put at risk between the ages of 0 to 11 and the daily risks that they faced. So yes, I've done some reading, I've researched contextual safeguarding, but I know and understand the topic by frontline experience and the practicality. It's trench knowledge, which became, I guess, instinctive. Somewhere in the middle of all of this, I received a calling to priesthood. And one day, sometime in 2017, after we'd achieved our outstanding Ofsted, just before I think I started my training, I wrote to Bishop Rob Wickham, who was at the time the Bishop of Edmonton, to find out what exactly the Church of England, the established church, was doing to tackle serious youth violence. Because from where I was standing, I just thought it wasn't good enough. In due course, he outmaneuvered me by offering me a mixed-mode curacy, post-ordination training. The context that you do your post-ordination training is in curacy. And as I said, I was working, I've been working with compassionate communities a couple of days a week to work on developing the safer communities theme so that there's greater clarity about how churches could actually get involved in serious youth violence, interrupting it, um, frustrating it, you know, recognizing it in their communities. In practice, my kind of curacy and my mixed mode curacy has looked like a creative consultancy role um, leading on bridging the gap between churches, schools and communities, working with Christian power organisations, charities and really bringing in systemic approaches or creative mission pilots and all the while trying to develop prayer resources and theological narrative on this issue so that the church's call 
to confront serious youth violence could be recognised within within our communities. We could see what is it that the church could do. And, and a key part of that was recognising that actually serious youth violence captures the central tragedy of our faith. The horror of Good Friday is revisited every time a mother, a parent is required to see and embrace her young son, a young man, young daughter's lifeless body in their arms. The theme has been renamed from serious youth violence to safer communities for all our young people to help churches really hear and understand how they can make systemically informed, critical community-based interventions that will make a difference. So that's a little bit about how and why I've ended up doing this kind of work. By the time you hear this podcast, I will probably have moved on from my curacy and the Compassionate Communities theme. But we really hope and pray that these resources will be helpful to the local church wherever. We want to be helping to build the confidence and competence of Jesus' people to intervene and interrupt serious youth violence using systemic approaches and in Jesus name rebuke and play our role in reversing the generational and institutional abuses that have been harming our young people and we want to do that by prayer and practice so as this podcast continues you're going to hear a bit more about the big picture I hope it's useful to you I hope it gives throws an imagination uh, out a net of um, ideas as to how we as the church, as the local church, can step up and step in. Hi everyone, I'm here, it's me Pete, if you recognise my voice, I'm here with Natasha. Hey, hi! Natasha. Hey. <laughs> hi. We're joining in with something that we feel is really important and um, it's actually a Diocese of London initiative and it's all about challenging youth violence. So just to get some clarity on that, I'm just going to read a uh, helpful summary of that from the Diocese of London. Youth violence, which is prevalent in London, is the intentional use of physical force or power to threaten or harm others by young people aged between 10 and 24. It typically involves young people hurting their peers who are unrelated to them and who they may or may not know. Youth violence can include fighting, bullying, threats with weapons and gang related violence. A young person can be involved with youth violence as a victim, offender or witness. So this is something that the diocese have identified is a, a big issue in London and we really want to engage with it. So we're creating these conversations because we really want to be thinking more deeply about it. We want to raise the profile of this initiative from the diocese, which we feel is really important. Uh, so yeah, how are you feeling, Natasha? <laughs> I'm well. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to talk about something like this. It's really passionate mm. and dear to my heart, partly because of my background. If I say something about that, I just spent the last 20 years as a in teaching and education, the last 10 working and serving mm. um, in a school on the Broadwater Farm estate. And that was a journey into really finding out more about these particular issues. I knew about it from a distance and mm. it's not something that's personally affected my um, family, mm. although I'm aware of people in, in from the era that I grew up in mm. um, that might have been touched by incidents that happened, but I was very much protected from it. But in terms of working in a community that has had to face that and engage with that story for a very long time. So yeah. have you lived in London more or less your whole life then? Yeah, I'm an original Londoner, nice. uh, born and raised. <laughs> yeah. And do you think you've seen this become more and more prevalent as you've lived in London over the 
Certainly, certainly. I can remember being 12 years old, making my way home from secondary school and everybody having to get off the bus in Hammersmith. I lived in Shepherd's Bush Mm. and walk from Hammersmith because an incident had happened and it completely blocked up all the way up the Gold Hawk Road and all of this stuff. And, you know, coming past that and being told that a guy had been chased down into yeah. the Shepherd's Bush market and shot and killed. Mm. And obviously really traumatic to hear that and um, mm. just something that stuck in my mind. And, you know, here we are 32 years later and that's a discussion <laughs> that's continued. And uh, it's one of the heartbreak aspects of us as a church, as the Anglican church, as the body of yeah. Christ, that this issue hasn't come to the fore more quickly it's about the fact that actually sometimes you're busy, you're involved in your own particular life. It hasn't affected you personally for whatever reason. But this issue is becoming more and more prevalent, unfortunately. Mm. It's happening to younger and younger um, people. It's really a some, something that requires the community to get involved. It's not left to the, the people who are grieving and burying their children it shouldn't yeah. be left to schools to deal it's all with of our responsibility everybody yeah. it takes a village to raise a child and never yeah. has that been more clear than with this issue yeah and we want to kind of understand because you know what we what you see is what is kind of when something erupts like we had a, a guy who who was killed near church and suddenly you're like confronted with it but what we want to do is try and spend a bit more time understanding all those different factors all those dysfunctions and injustices in society that then manifest in the violence and you know how can someone grow up in London and at such a young age become involved in so much violence like what is that journey so that's partly what we want to kind of reflect on and so we've identified a few areas um so I hope maybe you could talk a little bit about those Natasha. Yeah so the very first area is is going to be called birth and bereavement and it's Mm -hmm. about the challenge that it is coming into life and leaving Mm -hmm. life actually and the trauma that that causes that there are losses and um, journeys that families go through and depending on how well those families are supported or not um, has a huge impact on a child's readiness for them to enter the first institutions that they will go into, which is nursery and school. And then that will, so that first um, episode will lead us into a discussion around education and belonging and Mm -hmm. the experience and the power of an institution Mm -hmm. in its role to help people feel that they belong and that they are part of a community or not. Mm -hmm. And what impact that has when, because of structural internalized interpersonal institutional inequalities that might manifest um, through sexism and gender the way all of those connect together mean that one child's journey through that school can be that institution can be a completely different journey to another child and what can we do you know the obviously 20 years in education I've been watching and thinking about those dynamics for a long time but what impact it has when young people don't get that support. Then on the third session, we're going to jump into privilege and power. And that is going to look at actually serious youth violence is the fruit of a completely different dynamic. It's actually about organised crime. It's about drugs. It's about county lines. And all of these things are business and um, market related it often even involves forms of slavery and debt bondage. Mm-hmm. And from that um, narrative, actually none of this would happen if there wasn't a market. And that market yeah. is of class A drugs. Yeah. And if you know anything about class A drugs, you can't actually buy them unless you've got a particular <laughs> income bracket, really. Yeah. yeah. And um, so we need to start to address the fact that the death of these young bodies, often working class, often Mm. not able to get the privileges, are at the hands, actually, you could connect a line from those um, young people's deaths all the way through to people in parties engaging in recreational drug use and how that fuels the violence that's going on in London and other places. 
and that you know we cannot get away from the fact that there is actually one world yeah and we are all connected Absolutely. and because we are all connected we need to do something about it yeah and then the last one's church and community yeah that last one's a really important one too because church is the hope of the world we, we hear mm-hmm. that strap line said again and again yeah. and again and what Spurgeon. does it mean what does it mean and it, it, we've got to start to think more rather than just in aspiration or big you know blue skies ideas practically mm-hmm. what that means yeah. and that yeah. means that the church needs to be the family the the village around the child and that's what church should be. It's not going to be the only village, but certainly church is is called to be salt, to be light to the community, mm-hmm. to be a, a huge support in maintaining people when they've just gone through birth or bereavement, maintaining and supporting children as they're going through that journey of education and making sure that they've got other places of belonging as well. Mm-hmm. And certainly stepping into that fight around privilege and power yeah but then apart from that also being the community that wraps around a a family you know Mm -hmm. if you think of the holy family if some people describe it you know on a donkey traveling around having you know holding this baby it it, is not possible for you to fully raise jesus without that community for you know you see he's brought into the temple and received um, by people who've been waiting a long time yeah. for who he is. And all of those images are actually, you know, Christ carries in him the story of what all humanity's journey is meant to be, how you were yeah. supposed to be loved and received yeah. and welcomed and how you also, how you will be rejected because yeah. of the principalities of this world. And we really need to think just not in big terms hope of the world as to practically what does that mean tomorrow what does that mean when you've got a um, unwed mom coming into your church what does that mean when you've got a family who've been made refugees yeah in your community what does Mm -hmm. that mean when immigration policy is tearing apart family or that um, um, one of those parents you know that family suffers an early bereavement and what, what is the role of the church on a practical basis to do that and to be the grandmothers, to be the grandfathers, mm. mentors, all of these things that should be around that community. And it's a real call to the fact that actually we need to step into that and be yep. doing more about it. Yeah. And you're getting towards the next thing I wanted to mention is that we, you know, we really want to think about the hard facts of this and try and understand you know, the roots of the problem. And we also want to think theologically about it. We want to think like, so what is, so then what is the Holy Spirit saying to us about Mm. this? How can we bring the scriptures to bear on this? How can we use that resource that we have to, to help us think more deeply about it, to help us have more compassion, to help us bring a real message of hope and to help us, you know, like critique those, prophetically critique those systems that are broken that are leading to lives just getting wasted and this awful waste of life you know young people dying so one of the things that is is interesting is you can track you know we we talk about the fall narrative and we talk about adam and eve but Mm. you can track a downward there's you know actually the fall narrative is like a spiral Mm. you know it spirals down first you get Adam and Eve and their relationship breaks with God and then their relationship kind of breaks with each other a little bit, like they won't be naked with each other. And also themselves. Yeah, kind of self-esteem relationship breaks. And then you see that brokenness really spiral and manifest itself in these two brothers, these siblings, family. And, you know, that's, you know, two sons of Adam, two sons of humanity. Think of the symbolism of that. We're all, we're all siblings, you know, mm, and the yeah. first two siblings that we see, one of them kills the other. Yeah. So you have this awful awareness of the potential of violence right at the start of the scriptural story. And it's like a and it, that is like a big piece of the problem. We talk about the fall and we and we talk about kind of a, a, a human brokenness that needs to be fixed. Violence is, a, is actually a huge part of that for some of us who who maybe haven't been exposed to that much violence it's hard for us to quite 
maybe get our heads around that. But it's that that Cain and Abel story is actually so important. Um, yeah. We you know we spend so much time talking about Adam and Eve, and that rightly so. But Cain and Abel is super important, and there's a few things I'd quite like you to kind of bring out on that Natasha that we were talking about before. And it's like one is that even though Cain is the perpetrator, God is still very is actually very gracious with Cain. He's very, he's actually compassionate even with Cain. And the other thing is this idea of the blood crying out from the ground, which becomes an important scriptural theme. It says that Abel's blood, the blood of the innocent, cried out from the ground. There's a lot in there, actually, because we've got to come to terms with our relationship with violence, because wherever, whether you're exposed to violence or not, you are responding to it to to some sort of way. And people, we've either got really complex ways of avoiding seeing anything that makes us feel uncomfortable or Mm. we're using violence because violence is more than just the physical act. You can be emotionally violent towards somebody. You can be spiritually violent. Your words Mm -hmm. can be violent towards someone. So we've got to have a bigger picture of how actually we kill one another. Yeah. Spiritually as well as physically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. All of these levels. So once we've got a bigger picture of how something like violence happens and we, the relationship with shame is important Mm -hmm. because that's the shame that you see in the Adam and Eve's, you know, the fig leaf bit. There is this dynamic of violence around shame. You work with children who are showing that the trauma or exposing, experiencing mental health issues or just in a moment of rage and anger, you can see that actually shame, depending on what people speak about at particular points, can escalate a situation or bring it down. So we've got to really have a better understanding. When you're talking about violence, you need to talk about shame. Into that then comes the dynamic of envy or jealousy. They are slightly Mm. different. But um, that dynamic that happens between Cain and Abel and And Mm. the fact that people, we've got our little narrative that we have in our head, you Mm. know, so Cain, he he doesn't give of his best, sees his brother give of his best and then picks Mm. a problem with it. Yeah. And we have this ability to to see ourselves through slanted eyes and wrap a narrative around it that then mm. becomes um, the truth that we're moving, that our inference. You, in, when you're thinking about it, it's like a ladder of inference. This happened, mm. that happened, and therefore that, this, this, and this. And, and it's a, that point, it's about managing our biases. It's about, about thinking about, well, doubt my doubt. It could be that, it could be something else. Do you know what I mean? So what we end up with is a crime that happens and God, he gives, it's funny, my favourite bit is that you end up with this dialogue that goes on between Cain and Abel, where God comes to Cain and is asking him, where's your brother? And Mm. we know that God knows everything. So God already knows the answer to this question, not least because the blood is crying out. Yeah. And so there's always this opportunity to repent. God's open to that. But we look at God and choose not to use it. Instead of that, we want to... Is, am I my brother's keeper? Famous yeah. line that comes out. Yeah. Am I my brother's keeper? And mm. the answer, although it's not, is yes, you are your brother's keeper. Bro- we are all keeper. our brother's keeper. Yeah. And, and that is a dynamic that's there. But what then next happens is God marks him and marking mm. his psychology. And that's a bit that I find quite interesting as well, because I, I particularly heard this from listening to um, one of my favorite speakers, Tim Keller, was talking about mm. culture of death. That actually, because we harm one another, when you harm someone, you, pe- people often say, oh, you know, incidents that happened, they took away such and such a person's humanity. Your ha- humanity can't be taken from you. You have to give it away. That's the whole authority bit around the the devil, all of those things. You give away your humanity. Mm, you give it mm. away. When yeah. you harm someone else, it's your humanity that's dis- destroyed. It's, that's what happens to Cain. And then mm. everything that he creates is out of that warped psych- psychology. And if you see his generations have got Lamech and you've got, you end up with polygamy, you end up with all sorts of drama enters into yeah. the world. through the violence spirals even more. It yeah. does because your psychology is affected. And we know that from the fact that, you know, if that guilt shapes you, people can't sleep. You can't, you Mm. know, if you read a bit of Macbeth, all of those (laughs) are in there. 
Um, all of those dynamics are in there that you can't rest in that way. And the, yeah. the blood crying out is a really powerful one as well, because we see that later, the blood of the innocent cries yeah. out. And yeah. if you go to places like Auschwitz or I, I've mm. been to Rwanda, you, yeah. there, there is a quietness and stillness yeah. that's in these places that yeah. is quite haunting because yeah. of what has happened at that point. Human mm. blood cries out. We've, it's only recently we've learned that forensically you, you, you're finding it years and years later mm. because it stains. stains. And that's a really important metaphor for us to come to terms with when we think yeah. about the other person who was innocent and died, mm -hmm. Jesus, that yeah. his blood does stain. His blood cries out and mm -hmm. pleads on our behalf on our when you behalf. take it in in that way it, it soaks into you in a different understanding mm. and coming close to these narratives not being afraid of engaging with them um, it gives us a bigger vision of christ doesn't it it gives us a bigger vision of what it means for christ to suffer with us and for us to suffer with each other okay so that was amazing <laughs> i'm gonna have to listen back to that and <laughs> make some more notes i just want to highlight that we uh, as as a response to all this and as as part of what the diocese is doing with uh, this whole appeal is supporting the work of three charities xlp who we know very well tlg who were also uh, getting more getting to know better and you're you're transforming lives for good yeah transforming lives for good and uh, and the others red threads uh, which is a, a charity that goes in uh, and to hospitals and and speaks to um people who've been affected by by violence and tries to help break the cycle that way like break the circles of violence that way so we'll be talking more about those charities as time goes on if you're on the edge of your seat wanting to hear more you just have to wait until next time <laughs> <laughs>
the leap mm. in the stomach of the fact that, you know, my child in me, my creativity in me is rejoicing at seeing what God is doing even here mm. and how we can support this, this situation. Um, over many years, the church is sometimes on the wrong t- side of this argument. Sometimes we're backbenching people or dis- distancing ourselves from people. And, mm. you know, we have to repent for these things. We have to also repent for the bit of us that thinks that because um, we're married or whatever, oh, I've got life together. Birth is a challenging journey regardless. Yeah. And, and women sometimes don't help each other with this because we don't tell each other enough about it until and we keep our kind of horror stories about it and that's another example of that kind of patriarchal narrative like these things aren't important you know it's it's it can be a traumatic experience we know also that we've, we've kind of shaped a narrative that having a child is easy it, it is not it's painful it's costly all of it and and we need to be a church that steps into that and and is real about that stop making it fairy tale. Yeah. And because we have made it fairy tale, we miss aspects. So, you know, she's she's an unwed mother. The risk that she takes in her community, and and though all of those things are traumatic, mm. they used to call the word your confinement. But the whole period, and you see people like Hannah talking of, you know, she's looking after her baby for three years, and that whole weaning period is an extremely intense period between the mother and the child, father and the child mother and and father and child it's intense Mm -hmm. and they've got different roles that they play in this this particular aspect Mm -hmm. and there's all sorts of risks that happen there not least the breaking of the the relationship and even that nearly happens in the scripture because if if you look at it joseph is no fool he knows how uh, he knows how this is gonna sound (laughs) and so he 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 doesn't want her to get stoned but he was going to divorce her quietly yeah, not yeah. to shame her. But then we also see that kind of, and he has to have an angel come to see him. Not many of us, you know, an angel, spiritual warrior to help him readjust his thinking on that one. Yeah. It's no lightweight business. <laughs> so in terms of that, you know, all of that, the reception of a child, is the child being recepted, received by the father? You know, mm-hmm. that might be why we know Children don't come out without two to tango. So in that <laughs> sense, putting it lightly. Um, so in that sense, when that support is not there, immediately the mother is carrying additional stress yeah. and trauma. And there are all, there's always two sides to the story. There's people who have wanted to have a child as a way of holding on to a guy or holding on to or feeling loved. That happens inside marriage and outside marriage. It's just a cover to hide it. It's a canopy to hide it. Mm. But, you know, these things are not hidden to God. Mm. So in terms of all of that, oh, yeah. And let's not forget there's things like, you know, the family splitting up, adultery or whatever. All of these things can be trauma and impact the way that the the primary carer takes care of that child. Mm. Postnatal depression happens. We don't talk about it very much because people feel, and we spoke about it from last time, shame. Yeah. And because of that shame, they hide things that they're feeling that way. People, women feeling bad because they can't breastfeed or, or, you know, whatever aspect of it, of it. And then being left in that space without that. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, mm-hmm. a year in where new mums have not had the contact with their NCH groups, all of these things that used would have been there. They have not being doulaed properly they haven't had uh, somebody that they could go to and talk about you know your um birthing classes mm. so the whole process is now raw, stripped raw in that process and how have we how are we supporting new mums how are we holding them in this period who is holding the baby when mum needs to just catch up on some sleep because yeah. if she doesn't catch up on that sleep if she's not able to eat you naturally, you end up a bit like Elijah. You eat well, sleep well. You haven't, you haven't looked after yourself. So your mental health is going to go down because yeah. it's all connected. It, yeah. That may not be postnatal depression, but it's, it's a, a season of feeling that. Mm-hmm. And all of those emotions, all of those, it, it, we, we, I didn't talk about, you know, having a cesarean, traumatic. All of yeah. these things are, if 
these things happen and people are not supported properly, held properly by the community, by the innermost relationships, then easily people fall down and get, get unwell. And that child is crying, seeking, needing. And is mum able to deal with that? Is mum able to respond to that? Even if she is, she's exhausted, you know, and all of those things really matter. And so it's great that we might do a meal train for for people who have just had a child. You know, our baptism rites know that it takes a community. Yeah, we will. We will. We will, yeah. You know, and we have to take those, when we get the chance to do baptisms again, that Mm. word has to be, we will, has to be taken more seriously, that we are going to be those people for as long as it takes to raise those children. Yeah. You know, all of those things happen. We haven't talked about domestic abuse and domestic violence that can happen just in as it again shame and insecurity you know people think that just mums feel that the dads feel that as well I've come across fathers who have night terrors after their child is born because they they feel I have to protect this little one and they can't sleep Mm. and you know people may start using other drugs or whatever to calm that because they're so not used to they, it was meant to be this joyous moment mm. and it's flung me into these deep anxieties and depressions and fear yeah. and so all of these aspects of mental health if they continue for long periods of time that is going to impact how ready that child is mm. to interact the, how they connect connect their attachment attachment mm. is basically the science of love and the science of relationship, how how you interact with other people. And that's sewn together in your first interactions with your primary carer. Yeah. You're usually your mum or your dad. But then it's also the other people that are around, your auntie, your gran, all of these people. Who holds this baby? Who looks them in the eye? If you're a parent, don't look in your child's eye. It's very difficult for them to focus. Mm. So if you, because of the traumas that have gone on, so your partner's been um, unfaithful to you, let me reiterate, this happens inside Christian families. Don't, let's not pretend it's happening to somebody else. It happens. When those things happen, people out of, again, shame, don't want to show people what's happened and are trying to deal with it, but the intensity of these arguments and the pain and you know you want to get your final word out you're not looking at baby and baby's screaming they are learning but children are basically emotional sponges they're absorbing absolutely everything everything from the music they were listening to the music in the belly they're listening to the shouting they're listening to the laughter they're listening to all of these things and you are shaping your child's the neuroscience of their brain at that point. And people think, oh, it's a baby. I just changed the nappy and feed them and whatever, and it's okay. And you, you, all these little habits, like people overeating or whatever, come can come from there's an issue going on. The child is crying. I want to finish the discussion. So let me overfeed the child at this point mm-hmm. so that they fall asleep. Rather than actually the child is drawing your attention away and you need to focus and it's about getting the emotionality in control that we are going to have this discussion at another point because priority one is baby here. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And, and, and it's tough. It's not easy because it's meant to be testing. It does um, help it, when, when I see um, worked with situations of domestic violence. And it, this is one of the questions that people have. Maybe it's a point around theodicy that, you know, it seems like the woman who's up on the hill, who's got everything going for her, she's having challenges having babies. But the one that lives down at the quote unquote bottom of the hill, bottom of society, she's got more than one child. And pe- we, we talk about this in our, our media in a really deeply disrespectful way. Yeah. But, not, but forget the goodness and providence of God. Jesus is not the only child that was called into to the world to highlight issues. And so... You know, sometimes as a safeguarding officer or whatever, I've seen situations where these this lady's having three, four, five children in this particular in this unstable relationship. They're always fighting. They're all the child is a a flare 
Because the fact is, as a society, we just stop caring about people when they get to 18, maybe even 14. This is what serious use violence shows us. We're, we're overlooking these kids at a particular time. And sometimes God is trying to draw our attention. He's trying, he's calling, you know, we have to call social services at a particular point. If you hear a DV situation, you need to report, and the child is in there, you need to report it because the child is being put at risk, but sometimes it's God putting on us that there is an issue here. Yeah. And we are called to do something about it. And the church has to know it's not, not your business. It is everything your business because that is what Christ is calling to do. It's not about being over the boundary about it. It is about keeping yourself safe, but it is also about highlighting that these things cannot be allowed to continue. Yeah. It's not God's plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the, the other big piece in this is bereavement. Yes. The other big trauma piece um, is bereavement. Yes, bereavement comes in. We You have to balance it in the, in the sense that God knows our days. He numbers our days. Mm. But for some families, because of structural isms, people's lives are shortened. So we know that, for example, black women five times more likely to die in maternity or in, in the process of having a, a child. The NHS has known that for about 15, 20 years. Not enough has been done about it. Hasn't been highlighted in those things. And, and this is part of the reason that you're seeing certain communities in that end up because what difference, if I, everybody who can hear my voice, what difference would it make if your mother died mm. at your birth? in your relationship, think if that person was just disappeared, just like that. It's a massive impact on that. And if that's happening disproportionately, something should have been done about that a long time ago, you know, that at least being investigated. Then we look at bereavement of maybe a father can happen. What role does that person play, particularly in a patriarchal society where men earn more money than women or in some cultures and communities it's been reversed round because of all of this structural stuff. Mm -hmm. But the pressure then is on the mother to do all of this, which means it's taken her away or whoever the primary carer is away from that focus connection with child and baby. And then we've got the fact that actually, even if you, you, you've got some, some of our communities, you know, are not as individualistic as European Western society often wants to be. African, Asian, all sorts of communities, grandparents are looking after um, children. We found it in, in this pandemic. Yeah, multi-generational families. Multi-generational families, but how much it hamstringed even some of our middle-class families, their <laughs> advantage was that they were able to drop baby off to mum who have yeah. their grandmum who's not working because the finance is there mm. that mum doesn't think she's available uh, that's saving them huge amounts of money that they can put towards something like mortgage it's it's given you an advantage if child care is taken care of yeah. what then happens when one of those grandparents because of underlying issues dies look at the loss that happens to a community look how all, all the planning has to then change round and when you have got particular families that your socioeconomic is having a dynamic impact on your life chances, even in London, we can see the difference. Mm-hmm. So there's no way us as a church that, you know, the Anglican church is known to be a very middle class church. You have to step into that. We have to step into it. Mm-hmm. Not just because God has been identifying himself with this child you know, born in all of these situations, all of these circumstances with a community that's not, that doesn't respect you. You think it was forgotten that people kind of knew mm. she was unmarried, not forgotten, you know, and we get to all of those kind of discussions a little bit more. So where we end up is a child who, for multiple tra- reasons of trauma and shame, sometimes violence, sometimes mental health, sometimes isolation, being left in a situation and being brought to school ill-prepared to interact with others, to um, relate maybe their language. There's a language delay now. 
And all of these are separate, you know, inches, degrees that are separating the outcomes of those children going forward. Yeah, which um, certainly is a good is a good point to finish on, considering next week we're thinking about education and belonging. Absolutely. You know, with a child walking in with this with this history, with this experience, with this complex, complex grief and trauma and then entering into the community of education and, it, and its role in belonging. Yeah, it's contributing to exclusion, which it shouldn't be. Um, so, yeah, so, so next week we'll be tackling that, looking at the role of education and belonging. So do, do come along to that. Our responsibility as a church, yes, to pray, but also to be actively being Elizabeths in our community, protecting and surrounding these families. This was episode one of Interrupting Serious Youth Violence. Episode two will explore education and belonging and will feature an interview with educational thought leader, Rachel Clark. Compassionate Communities is part of the Diocese of London. We exist to support and serve every church across the diocese in serving their communities compassionately. The practical love of God in action. Churches across the diocese offer 1,500 ministries of compassion to the communities that they are part of, works of service and acts of justice for every Londoner to encounter the love of God in Christ. Our key themes of work are caring for God's creation, mental health and isolation, refugees and asylum seekers, money, debt and food insecurity, housing and homelessness, safer communities for all young people and modern slavery please do check us out on the website we can be found at compassionatecommunitieslondon.org.uk that's compassionatecommunitieslondon.org.uk thank you for listening thanks to david backhouse for the theme tune and to chris marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page, or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.